Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're going to be taking stock of this extraordinary American presidential race after another tumultuous week. We've had the Trump tape, we had the really something second presidential debate. I don't know what to call it, we'll come on to that in a second. And we've had some but not all of the Republican Party leadership running away from Donald Trump as fast as their little legs will take them. I'm just going to go around our panel and we've got our regular panelists Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke here and also delighted to welcome two new but soon to be regular panelists Aisha Zarakol and Maha Rafi Atal, both of whom write about international politics. We're a few days on from that debate. The New York Times called it remarkably tawdry which I guess is true but I'm not sure that that's the right measure for this. What's the word that you think captures this debate? So watching it, I thought it was mudslinging. Uh, But reflecting on it after a couple of days, I don't know if it's that weird within the context of this race. Because the second debate is usually the town hall style format and is often the debate where character issues matter the most because those are the things that undecided late-breaking voters tend to ask about in October. And to the extent that this that debate was about character, you got Trump's character in full. The whole exchange about you'll be in jail, the beginning 15 minutes or so about the tape fits, I guess, within the paradigm of what you would expect from this candidate and that format. But it was tawdry. I mean, it was tawdrier than your average town hall debate. Sure, but this candidate's tawdrier than your average town hall candidate. So it was typical for him, I think. I think that the interesting thing about it in a way was that although it was excruciating to watch the first 15, 20 minutes of it, actually, once that bit was over, it just kind of went on like you would expect the Trump-Clinton debate to go on. It got pretty quickly off the tawdry stuff, if we're going to use that as the way of describing it. And then what happened was you know, Trump put in a much more effective performance than he had done in the first debate, not least because he was much less defensive, despite the fact he'd had to start in this incredibly defensive position, that he got more effective jabs into Hillary Clinton. You know, at a number of points, she clearly was struggling to articulate the message that she'd got lined up for being how she would respond to if Trump says that. So I think that by the end of it, that what we saw was the way in which um, Trump has kind of himself as well unburdened himself of the Republican Party in the same way in which they have unburdened themselves or part of the Republican Party has unburdened themselves of um, him. This was much more like Trump was in the in the primaries of him doing his own thing and really trying to attack what he sees as the, you know, the utter hypocrisy of the American policy establishment. And as some of the commentators have pointed out, the town hall format, which trained politicians know how to handle, which is empathy, engagement with the the members of the public who are there, he doesn't do that either. No, I'm one of these people who, uh, as I get older, I can't really stay up late at night that well. So I'm one of the people who read the debate as the transcript. Uh, American news websites published the transcript of the debate. And it's it's a fascinating read because... Clinton doesn't, she doesn't speak in paragraphs, but she does speak in sentences that have structure to them. And she more or less answers the questions that she's been posed. And Trump doesn't. He has an extremely short attention span. He gets carried away with his own train of speech such that he forgets, or he seems to forget, where he began. And he keeps coming back to the same phrases again and again. Sometimes it's phrases that are stock phrases from his campaign, like when he says that there's, there's no one who has more respect for women than he does. 
Um, and sometimes it's <laughs> the looks the, around the table on that line have to be seen. And sorry, you can't see them. <laughs> and sometimes it's the uh, it's the jabs, it's the the put downs of Hillary Clinton. He growls more than once that she'll be in jail if he's president. Um, just checking in the transcript, does it say growl or you just no, in, no, you're no, intuiting I, I, th- that? This, this is how this is how it comes across. And on the one hand, looking at the transcript where it does read as somewhat as coherence versus incoherence, the mind boggles to think that anyone could think that Trump was a good debater. But actually, even though he lost the debate on any measure that the networks will measure with their polls of undecided voters and so on, you can see why quite a lot of people warm to it, if you see it as a kind of performance art rather than... um, a sincere attempt to answer a bunch of questions. In terms of body language, there was the issue of Trump lurking in the background, kind of hovering in Hillary Clinton's space. So his debate performance, maybe for that reason, doesn't seem to have helped with female voters. In fact, there were some polls that came out just yesterday uh, showing that Clinton is winning by a huge uh, margin among likely female voters. Although weirdly, the poll I saw, he's still winning among men, which kind of takes your breath away. And among white men, he's winning by a lot, right? Is that not what the polling is still suggesting? It suggests that. It just doesn't necessarily take my breath away, which is perhaps reflective of the state of things. Okay, we're going to come back to talk a bit more about the theme that Helen brought up, which is the break between Trump and the Republican Party, particularly the Republican Party leadership. But we're just going to pick up on one thing that came out of those debates, and it came out of the first debate too. One of the things that Trump did in this performance was, and he he's up against the ropes, no question, and it was a kind of scorched earth performance, uh, coherent or incoherent, was he did what politicians under pressure always do, which is he fell back on the triggers or catchphrases that he knows will please his core supporters. And in Trump world, a lot of that is conspiracy theory. That is, he sent out the signals that he shares their suspicions about the official version of certain things. And again, if you read the American press, when they listed these trigger words, if that's, that's probably not the right phrase for them, anyway, these, uh, this blatant signaling, they included Benghazi, email, and the phrase Sidney Blumenthal. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is the second time he did it in the first debate as well, that he says the word Sidney Blumenthal, and he expects his audience to know what he's talking about. Now, he's making a specific allegation about Blumenthal, which is that Blumenthal and not Donald Trump is the person behind the Bertha story about Barack Obama from 2008, before Obama was elected president, when he claims Blumenthal, as part of Hillary's campaign, was out there pushing the line that people should investigate where Obama was born. And of course, Blumenthal denies that. But I think the real story about Blumenthal is weirder and deeper than that. And I caught up with a researcher, Andrew Mackenzie McCarg, who has been studying the history of conspiracy theories, where they come from, but also what they mean. What is the world of conspiracy theory actually about? And I started by asking him the question I guess a lot of people have been asking, not just on this side of the Atlantic, which is, who is Sidney Blumenthal? Sidney Blumenthal is a long-time confidant of the Clintons, He was involved in Bill's uh, administration as uh, an advisor and an aide from 1996 onwards, I believe. I first encountered his name in a very different context. 
I was interested in the emergence of the term conspiracy theory. And one important landmark always is, when does a concept appear for the first time in the title of a book? And in the case of the term conspiracy theory, this concept, there is an interesting little book from 1976 called Government by Gunplay, Assassination Conspiracy Theories, as one of the editors, we have Sidney Blumenthal. I was about to say, you're not going to tell me he was the author, he was the editor. He was a co-editor, actually, to be precise. Harvey Yazajian is was the other co-editor. Both of them were associated with an interesting little outfit based in Massachusetts at this time, known as the Assassination Information Bureau. It sounds like a kind of parody of the world of conspiracy theory, and we're talking about Sidney Blumenthal age... What, in his 20s? In his late 20s, I believe, yes. It actually had begun as the Grassy Knoll Debating Society in a far more informal context. They were simply meeting and discussing the speculation about what had actually blighted American politics since 1963 when JFK was assassinated. So are these people basically on the left? Is this kind of conspiracy theory coming from the left because we'll come on in a second to the fact that at the moment it tends to be associated with the right but Blumenthal's on the other side the intriguing thing about it actually is that there were connections linking them back to the student protest movement of the 1960s and so on that basis you would certainly assign them to to the left the figure who in some ways was their most prominent conspiracy theorist was uh, Carl Oglesby, and Carl Oglesby is a figure who I have uh, devoted a lot of study to. Uh, He was director at one stage of the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, and of course that movement had split in the late 1960s, a traumatic experience for Oglesby because he was at that stage among the moderates and not part of this splinter group known as the Weather Underground or the Weathermen. For Oglesby, the activism continued with the assassination Information Bureau, he believed that that was going to be the the new means in which to bring about a reform of American society. And so Blumenthal is one of that group, and then he moves into journalism, and then he moves into the orbit of the Clintons, and then he kind of appears in a conspiracy theory story again at the time of Bill's troubles with Monica Lewinsky and the impeachment when Hillary famously talked about the vast right-wing conspiracy. And Blumenthal is around the Clintons at that point too, right? That's correct. One thing which seems to be this abiding feature of Blumenthal's career is this proximity to conspiracy theories, and he himself has a penchant for conspiracy theories. And and of course, that's what he's being accused of now, that he's being accused of being behind the Bertha movement. Exactly. He's denied, the Clintons have denied, and I think it's clear that it's not on the same scale as what Trump was doing, but that's the accusation. Yes, I believe he's just a political operative who was considering, therefore, the options when Hillary Clinton was a prospective presidential candidate for the Democrats. And at that This is in 2008. 2008, exactly. I mean, he has denied it, but he said that there were reasons why certain uh, reporters or journalists might like to investigate more closely what the exact links were for Obama linking him to, 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 to Kenya. He he has obviously denied spawning this rumour. But as they say, he has history here. He has a record of believing in conspiracy theories. So the the reason this is all so weird, and I imagine it's not just weird for people who aren't American, it's this this has been an extraordinary election. So here we have this man, Blumenthal, 
We've only had two presidential debates and he's had three name checks. And he's become a sort of embodiment of the paranoia of the right. That is, he triggers among Trump supporters this feeling that there is a vast left-wing conspiracy, that there are these people who, particularly are close to the Clintons, who are part of that, that conspiratorial network. And yet Blumenthal is himself a conspiracy theorist who projects something similar onto the right, and there's a vast right-wing conspiracy. So we kind of got this phrase that's been come up a lot in this campaign, the paranoid style in American politics. We've got the two sides of it kind of meeting in the middle. Right. I can't fathom it. Right. No, it's perplexing. The, the paranoid style, that began in 1963, actually, with uh, Richard Hofstadter, uh, who launched this idea of the paranoid style. And in many ways, it's a, a, you know, synonymous with uh, an obsession with conspiracy theories. And he did it almost exactly at the time of the Kennedy assassination, one of those weird coincidences. That's one of the intriguing coincidences. And indeed, it's something which surprised me because not many people have picked up on it. Of course, when we say coincidence, then the conspiracy theorists... There are no coincidences. There are no coincidences, exactly. But as a sober-minded historian, I think that was just purely coincidence that in Oxford on the 21st of November 1963, Richard Hofstadter holds a lecture about the paranoid style. And actually, as a result of my research, I know that he then got on a train and came to Cambridge to visit friends here. Somewhere on the journey or getting off at the station here in Cambridge, he had learned that during that time, Kennedy had been assassinated. This uh, essay, which he wrote, then was published in Harper's Magazine in 1964, and it absorbs some of these ideas about the Kennedy assassination, the conspiracy theories. But there are still conspiracy theories coming from the right. And so the paranoid style is something which Richard Hofstadter associated with the right. It was very quickly pointed out to him, though, that we have examples of the paranoid style on the left. And to bring it back to Sidney Blumenthal, you might say that he is someone whose political affiliations seem to be more on the left. I don't believe he's a hard-wing left ideologue and is also a proponent or exponent of the paranoid style. Do you think this election is telling us something about America that's been there pretty much all along. I mean, Hofstadter traces it right back to the origins of the Republic and some of the paranoia and conspiracy theories that surrounded the wars of independence and so on and about the British. Is this election just a kind of heightened version of something at the heart of the American political psyche? Or is it the other thing that people often think, which is actually some of the wildness here is a product of the age of the internet and of digital technology and new kinds of communication, and that we're actually what we're seeing is something quite new, this incredible, relentless suspicion coming from every direction, directed all around, that feeds right the way through to the presidential debates, because there have never been debates like the one we saw That's true. this week. I think what's interesting about the election is that we've had populism on both sides with Bernie Sanders' campaign to become the presidential candidate for the Democrats. And populism in the American context seems to be the natural habitat for conspiracy theories. We have we play with this idea of the division between the right and the left and how polarised it is in America at the moment. But we also need to consider another dimension, and that is simply between liberalism and populism. And I have the feeling, actually, that when Hillary Clinton is talking about the deplorables and talking about 
Donald Trump living in an alternate reality, then in many ways she represents the liberal tradition there. I know that we've had kind of discussions about whether in some ways she also has her own proclivity towards conspiracy theories. And I think under Blumenthal's influence, that might have been the case. But what I hear then when she talks about the deplorables and the alternative reality in which many of these people live, including Trump, this is the liberal diagnosis of populist movements. What I find also interesting with regard to Bernie Sanders is that Bernie Sanders was not really seen as the frontman for a communist, socialist, international conspiracy. Don't know You're surprised not because you believe he was, but because, because <laughs> exactly. that's how people like him tend to be portrayed exactly. by their paranoid opponents on the other side. Well, presumably, had he won the nomination, that, that's exactly what we would see now. I mean, it's that weird thing that while the Hillary and Bernie were competing for the Democratic nomination, they were not mimicking what would have happened in a general election. Sidney Blumenthal presumably doesn't think that Bernie is part of some giant conspiracy because he understands where Bernie comes from. But were Bernie the Democratic nominee... The, the Trump worldview would have been unleashed on him right? in the way that we have to assume similarly if Corbyn is still leader when uh, we go to our next general election in this country that the, the view is that the Conservatives have been holding back. That's true. That's true. And so, I But mean, I'm sounding anyways. paranoid. <laughs> it's so hard to talk about this without sounding uh, a little like the thing that we're talking about. So just to take it back finally again to, to Blumenthal, there is a simpler explanation, and it's been touted all over the web as well, that what Trump is doing in offering this kind of red meat to his supporters by simply uttering the words Sidney Blumenthal or someone else whom he's name-checked more than once in the debates, Deborah Wasserman Schultz, the chairperson of the DNC, is that he's just touching base with their anti-Semitism. That he's simply uttering names that he knows sound not just sort of foreign in that Hofstadter paranoid style way, but Jewish. And that this is as old as conspiracy theory itself. You scratch a conspiracy theory, and if you keep scratching, the thing you always find at the bottom is anti-Semitism. Well, in some ways, you might even say that he's destroying the legacy of William F. Buckley, who sidelined the the anti-Semitic sentiments within the Republican Party and made it a more centrist institution. Anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories, of course, that's a very old relationship. I would actually be somewhat cautious because if you actually even take once more Richard Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style and have a look at the essay and the examples which he cites, it's not always anti-Semitism. The first example which he cites of the paranoid style in America is the Illuminati scare at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. The notion that this notorious secret society of the Illuminati, that uh, they were responsible for the crises of the moment. And he goes on to cite other examples, the fear among Protestant Americans of a Catholic subversion of America. And so Certainly, there's a very regrettable and long history of how entwined conspiracy theory and anti-Semitism is. But I think it would be to simplify conspiracy theories to say that you can always trace them back to some sinister Jewish figures in the background. But it might not be to simplify Trump. No. Yeah, exactly. But therefore, we once more are kind of... 
entering the field of psychology and uh, asking ourselves what kind of cues do these people actually really respond to and possibly it is the case I feel that I'm a little bit too detached from the Republican American base to really know what their mindset is but whether when they hear the Blumenthal they immediately think Jewish on perhaps even on a subconscious level that would be the question I think that's also why the paranoid style is interesting because uh, Hofstadter was saying that it's a kind of it's a form of psychiatry as history and uh, he was saying that we can only understand these movements on the basis of their psychology and the symbolic role played by certain rituals and certain names and Blumenthal would be such a name it would possibly trigger off these associations with the Jews Jewish conspiracies that's a fairly ugly legacy of that not just uh, in American politics. Andrew Mackenzie McCarg and the Paranoid Style. So let's get back to now and the world of the Paranoid Style in 2016. Helen, you mentioned that the relationship between Trump and the Republican Party, which has never been particularly solid, is now, I guess, frayed almost to the point of breaking. It's really hard to campaign for president when the leadership of your party is running in the opposite direction. Is this terminal for him now? I mean, my feeling is that unless all the old rules no longer apply, there is no route from here to the White House for Trump without the support of his party. And I know they're divided on this and that Cruz and Rubio have said, though, Trump makes them ill. Hillary makes them iller. But Paul Ryan? I think that there isn't a route to the presidency for Trump from this moment, but I'm not sure there was a route to the presidency for Trump from before this, for the reasons I was talking about, I think it was last week or the week before, about the incredibly weak organisational apparatus that he has in place. And again, that fact and the absence of fundraising to support it goes back to his relationship as much as anything with the Republican Party, is is that the Republican Party has never really got on board with the Trump candidature. And so I think that in some sense, the more interesting thing that has happened is, is to say, OK, this candidacy has now destroyed the Republican Party as we know it. Already the Trump candidacy was in some way destroyed you know, by its own internal contradictions. But what we are witnessing is the Republican Party is well, what is going to happen to this party after this? Because Trump has proved a disastrous nominee from the point of view of party um, unity, but he's also exposed the complete hollowness of the strategic approach that Republicans have taken. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Taken since 2008. I mean, everything Helen says is correct, but I am troubled by the fact that despite party support and uh, not having the full support of even Fox News behind him. He's doing so well. He's uh, polling as well or better than Mitt Romney was at this stage of the campaign. So that suggests to me that he has a real demographic support base, which won't go away even if Trump is defeated in these elections. My attention keeps getting drawn back to the uh, 1964 election. Goldwater lost, but even though he had the support of Hillary Clinton. Even though he had the support of Goldwater girl Hillary Clinton. But in a way, he lost the battle but won the war, that it was 
Goldwater, who managed to transform the Republican Party. And lots of people draw a link between Reagan's victory in 1980 and Goldwater's defeat in 1964. And that's the thought I keep coming back to with Trump, that I don't think he's going to win this election. I've never really thought he was going to win this election. But there'll be an awful lot of ambitious Republican politics who'll be studying what he's been doing very carefully. And Obviously, there's a huge dilemma, which is that by emphasising the white nationalism, you lose the support of Latinos, you lose the support of uh, what support there may be for a Republican to pick up among African-Americans and other minorities. But I think people never expected there to be quite so much enthusiasm from not very well-educated white Americans for this kind of political message. And Republicans will be studying hard how they can harness the energy of the Trump campaign while not alienating quite as many constituencies, quite as many voters as Trump has managed to do. And that may be the route back to national competitiveness in presidential elections for the Republican Party. And that's quite a disturbing thought. I I think that's right. And I I think that there are moments, and 64 is one of them, where the American party system resorts itself in terms of what demographics attach themselves to which parties. And you could see what's already been happening over this cycle with working class white voters shifting historically from the Democratic Party over to Trump, sort of completing itself, where they become the party of white, not college educated voters. It would be probably a very male leaning voting base. And then the shift of the Latinos over to the Democrats completes itself um, and it becomes the party of minorities and women. That, I think, still gives the Democrats a demographic advantage with the way that the demographics are going. So it's not entirely clear to me how the Republican Party would compete at the national level with that. But there are discrete places where at the local level that coalition could be very successful. But is it not possible, maybe this is naive, but is it not possible that ambitious Republican parties would look at this campaign and just think, oh my God, we must never ever go down this route again, that this has trashed the brand? I was going to say, I think much more along this way, and for the reason that I think that the idea that the Republican Party at the the leadership level, in view of the way in which it's behaved itself towards the Trump candidacy, can hold on to the Trump passionate supporters, I just don't think that that holds. Is, is these are voters who now hate the Republican Party. These are voters who think that the Republican Party is part of an establishment that they despise, who they think that it's corrupt, in the same way in which many Bernie Sanders supporters think the Democratic Party is corrupt. And I think if you, if you go back to the historical parallels, and I think we should be a bit wary of them, given I do think that so we are living in such complicated and unprecedented times in many ways. But if you go back to the 1890s and look at William Jennings Bryan candidacy and the mobilisation of farmers in a populist revolt against the economic establishment, what happened after his failure in the 1896 election was not that the farmers were then mobilised into the Democratic Party's coalition successfully. Indeed, the Democratic Party thereafter turned its back on those voters and went after trying to construct an urban coalition of which the, the farmers weren't part of. So I think that the idea that the Republican Party can simply mop up these voters into its future coalition and ignore everything that the voters feel about them and at the same time the antagonism that many other voters in the old Republican coalition feel towards Trump and towards indeed the Republican voters who support him. I just don't think that works. Yeah, I mean, that's right, but that doesn't mean those voters will go away. So it it, it may actually happen and it has happened in other national contexts that somebody may come along and with a more competent version of the same message. Because I think Trump is showing that you don't really need the party apparatus to um, get to certain heights in national politics. Oh, I think that's true. But all I'm saying is I don't think that that candidacy will emerge in the Republican Party again. So if we compare it to other national contexts, we talked a little bit about are there comparisons here? And I think possibly Berlusconi is the closest, but 
partly just because of the tawdriness, basically. Uh, but there are differences. One, that Trump really needs his own party. It doesn't fit the Republican Party. But the other is that if you're going to do this kind of politics and you're going to peddle the lines that Trump is peddling, which are only tangentially related to the truth, you need a really serious media operation behind you to hold that line. And of course, what Berlusconi had was not a monopoly, but a huge Italian media operation covering newspapers and TV stations and so on. It's what Putin has. It's what Erdogan has in Turkey. And Asia will come on to that comparison in a second. But one of the things I like about America, I like many things about America, one of the things I like about America, it's so big that Trump is a pipsqueak. He's like, I mean, in the American media landscape, what has he got? I mean, he hasn't even got Fox News. He's only got bits of it. He's got Breitbart, the alt-right. But this is nothing. He can't hold the line in the way that these populist strongman leaders in other countries can hold the line. And that seems to me another reason why actually the kind of stuff that he peddles isn't going to win him an election because you have to have a massive media operation pushing your position. This is where we come back to the question about how much the media landscape is being transformed by new media and social media and so on. Berlusconi's empire was focused on television in an Italian world where lots and lots of Italians got their news from television. The gamble that people like Trump are making and also, I think, a politician like Jeremy Corbyn is that the mainstream media, the newspapers especially, will count for less and less with the passage of time. And that's not necessarily a crazy thought to have. The newspaper industry is in enormous structural trouble. It's very difficult to make money out of selling newspapers these days. Lots of people have apocalyptic predictions for the future of the industry. I'm sure Trump would have welcomed much more unequivocal support from the people at Fox News. They've been treated as a regular part of the attack dog right for the last few presidential cycles. But going back to the dog whistling with conspiracy words that we talked about earlier, these are ways of you know, attracting attention on social media networks, on, the, on these kinds of networks. And this will become a bigger and bigger part of future electoral politics. I don't think it's going to be as transformative as the boosters of Facebook and Twitter and so on say it's going to be. But this is an aspect of electoral politics that is going to get bigger over time. But, but one thing that newspapers and TV can do is they can hold the line. And the trouble with this kind of fragmented new media landscape is that, yes, a lot of this dog whistle conspiracy theory is out there and it's picking up different bits of support in different places. But it's not, and maybe I'm just out of date here, but it's not that almost late 20th century version of this populism where you actually have these big media juggernauts channeling your position. And I'm looking at Asia now. Is, is, is Turkey still in that space where the, the, the state position and indeed the conspiracy theories that come out of the Turkish government can be channeled by mass media? Until um, until a couple of years ago, uh, Turkey did have a, a relatively fragmented or pluralistic, depending on how you look at it, uh, media space. And all of that has been brought under the control of Erdogan. So I think people underestimate how easily that can be done, even in the age of supposedly free access to information, uh, free and easy access to information. And actually, if you do have a number of channels that creates the illusion of diversity, but they all give a version of the truth, and that's much harder to combat than, you know, one state television repeating propaganda. 
And, that, and in a way, that's the Putin model too, yes. right? I mean, Putin, it's not the old-fashioned communist, the state newsreader, some guy with glasses on sitting there and reading the communist position. It, it's the impression of a pluralist media environment in which there's a real holding of the line around these conspiracy theories. Yeah. And Turkey is a little like that now? Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's a lot like <laughs> a that lot, now. Even more than Russia now, I would say. Wow. Yeah. A couple of things. The U.S. media landscape, even before... Uh, the rise of new media and the fragmentation that's taken place as a consequence of that has never had the kind of central arbiter of authority that a lot of, let's say, European countries would have in the state broadcasters. If the BBC got taken over by an Erdogan-type figure, there would be a political crisis. But we don't have any entity that plays Not even the New York role. Times. Not even the New York Times. And the other thing about this is this is being depicted as a competition between newspapers and new media. Most Americans don't get their news from either the newspapers or the internet. Most Americans get their news from broadcast television. And what matters is the degree to which NBC is picking up the New York Times reporting or the Politico reporting or is picking up the Bart Bright, Breitbart, whatever. Bart, North, right, Breitbart, whatever. Crazy conspiracy theory nonsense. And so what has happened, I think, is they're starting to shift. So for the first part of this cycle, one of the roles that the media has played in making the Trump candidacy possible is that for entertainment value, the broadcasters, not the partisan broadcasters, but the regular broadcasters were picking up a lot of this stuff. And they have now stopped doing that, have gone back to their default, which is the New York Times leads today with whatever the story about Trump is. And that, I think, may make a difference because... To the extent that there are still undecided voters, they tend to be people who are listening to NBC, ABC, you know, sort of public radio, very mainstream, very aspiring to neutrality broadcast news. So I think, you know, that maybe for British listeners in particular is something to understand about the American media landscape. I agree that the U.S. is a very pluralistic media uh, landscape and is as protected from these trends I've discussed as any place can be. At the same time, I think it's not inconceivable that some kind of narrative consolidation could happen in the U.S. I mean, I was living in the United States in the lead up to the war in Iraq, and I did see all media organizations, whether they're from you know uh, the left or the right, kind of repeat the same narrative. So we should remember that neither Putin or Erdogan came to power with full support of the media or the public, but then using resources of the state, they made their competitive advantage permanent. But it reminds me of um, some of the conversations we had uh, last year uh, during the British general election, that one of the stories was about the rise of social media and the use of, by the campaigns of Twitter and so on. But then the news media, the, the agenda of the parties did seem to be set by stories that were appearing in the national newspapers. And thinking about the recent American election, of course, it's striking that the story that has gripped everyone in the last uh, 10 days or so has been the the groping tape. And that was, that looks like an old-fashioned newspaper exclusive with a story in the Washington Post. And so that may be where the newspapers still have an important role, that we're seeing the major stories coming out of them, rather than through the cable networks or the murkier corners of the internet. And it was an old-fashioned newspaper exclusive backed up with a bit of old-fashioned footage from a TV show. Newspapers and television do still, on the whole, command this space. I want to just raise a couple more things. Uh, we're going to keep talking about this week after week after week. The most striking thing for me about the two debates was that Trump's candidacy runs on his anti-immigration message. That's what got it off the ground. That's what has motivated him. And that's what drew in 
the bulk of his support. There has not been a substantive discussion in either debate about immigration. What's going on there? Is is the third one going to be about that? Or were the moderators, I mean, maybe they decided they didn't want to bring up the Mexican wall, but given it is the central, in some senses, the central theme of this election, there seemed to me just to be something missing from both debates. It is quite striking, particularly in the first debate, which was supposedly at least, you know, focused on economic questions. And yet the moderators who said what the themes were at the beginning, which were all essentially about economic questions, asked a question about birtherism and didn't ask a question about immigration policy. I think there is something odd about that. Maybe it will come up in the third debate. The other odd thing is, is that um, Trump himself hasn't taken the opportunity to pivot away to immigration. It's not like he's usually constrained by what questions that he is asked in terms of what he wants to say. Exactly. And in the primary debate, he just, every time he was in trouble, he just yeah. said he would build a wall. But I think that the, the, the other interesting thing, though, and it will be interesting to see now what happens in some sense when he's un- completely unshackled from the Republican Party, is, is that on a number of things in the way in which he's performed so far, he strangely has sort of stuck to kind of a more like Republican Party script than what it was like in the primaries, both in terms of not saying anything about illegal immigration, which is actually more what its focus has been than immigration itself. And this is something that the Republican Party had taken as its lesson from 2012, that it had to shut up about illegal immigration. He's also started talking much more about tax cuts, again, a long-standing Republican leadership agenda, which didn't really feature in anything he said in the primaries. And he's also pivoted away from his attacks on Saudi Arabia, or on the, I should say, on the US-Saudi relationship, which was pretty central to what he was saying on foreign policy in the primaries. And now he's, I was really took some intake of breath when he said in, in this debate that Iran was the greatest threat, terrorist threat in the world. He was explicitly attacking this position and saying it was Saudi Arabia in the primaries. So in some sense, I think that Trump absorb some of the Republican playbook, if you like, for trying to win elections, usually unsuccessfully, that the party leadership had wanted him to embrace. And now, are we going to see them when we get to the third debate when he thinks, well, to hell with them? Wow, so the third debate, the first two debates could have been the disciplined ones, and now we're really going to let rip. Oh, I shudder to think. Um, So I, I think that's right. I think that one reason we were seeing more statements that sounded like they they were Republican boilerplate from a candidate who hasn't been like that over the course of the primary is that he does know, or at least he seems to have, somebody told him before the second debate, I think, that he was at risk of hemorrhaging the entire support of the Republican Party. And he does know that he needs the party and its ground operation machine much more than the party needs him because he himself as a campaign doesn't have they have basically no ground staffers in a lot of the swing states they don't have the ability to do get out the vote on their own so if the republican party decides it's not doing get out the vote for trump it wants to focus on the local races the down ballot races where they're still competitive which i think is what's happening they're shifting towards trying to get swing voters for the down ballot races then he's in trouble so i think part of it is a reaction to that But then I also think the reason the questions, I mean, I was surprised that there was not an immigration question, but thinking about it, it might be that there's a very small number of voters who are undecided this late in the cycle. And one of the key demographics that breaks late is white suburban college educated women. And I think that that's a demographic that breaks primarily on character issues and not so much on something like immigration. Like, I don't know if immigration is a huge deciding issue for that demographic. So it may just be that for the voters who are making their decision on the basis of the debates, it's not that important. And then one final thought, because here we are, we're not all British, as you can probably hear from our accents, but we are talking from an ocean away about the American election. I heard at the weekend, in the context of a discussion of Trump's candidacy, 
some American voices saying, you Brits should have a think about how your politics looks to us now because it's really ugly. And they were referring specifically to Amber Rudd's now notorious speech at the Tory party conference in which she said the government has now backtracked from this position, but in which she said she would require companies to publish lists of their non-UK national workers. And these American voices were saying, you think Trump is bad, but that's coming from your Home Secretary. I mean, this, is, this isn't some candidate for office. This is someone who holds office. And I have to say, when I heard that, I thought, I mean, there's been a certain amount of shock about what she said, but just trying to take that step back and seeing it from the outside, I'm looking at you, Chris, maybe we should have been more shocked. Oh, absolutely. And it's the relentlessness of what's happening at the moment. So even when Rudd backtracked, there was a signal that the government wouldn't publish the lists of foreign workers, but it's still going to hold on to its list. Which is in some ways more sinister. So the government's going to have secret lists of foreign workers. And then we have uh, this week the fee for making an appeal against an immigration tribunal decision just um, was multiplied fivefold. I think that's a change that's been coming in for a while down the pipeline, but it fits in with all of this. We have a story in the newspaper just yesterday about how there's a suggestion that pregnant women are going to have to show their passports before they can have a baby delivered in a National Health Service hospital. And we're in this world where, you know, things are being tried. It's not quite clear what's going to become government policy and what's just going to be being tried out with the media to see what reaction it gets. But this is monstrous. This is monstrous. And, um... It's a sign of just how much cover the referendum result is giving to the hard nativist right and the Conservative Party, backed up by the press, the Express, the Mail, the Telegraph. I'm one of those people who thinks that very nasty things are happening in British politics today. And the individual stories would be shocking if they'd come out under the coalition government, or, but we're getting them on a daily basis. I think that there's clearly some pretty nasty things, pretty horrendous things that are in the public sphere and being discussed um, at the uh, moment. I think, though, that we have to be careful in thinking there's a world in which this isn't going to happen or wouldn't have happened in another way. And in particular, I think that you've got to think about what would have happened if the referendum had gone the other way, so it was 52-48 the other way, uh, and so Remain had won, um, and yet 48% had voted to leave and had been mobilised in part by the immigration issue. I think we would be looking at by the time the next election came about, UKIP being the main opposition party. Instead, we're living in a British politics in which UKIP has imploded, which is probably one of the good things that's come out of the referendum campaign. In that sense, I think that what's happened across the Western world, it's true in the United States, it's true not just in Britain, but in other European countries, is that immigration issue has been put back into democratic politics. And it is going to be quite a frightening and um, scary ride that we're all on now as those consequences of that play themselves out. So... The scary ride continues, and next week we have a special live edition of Talking Politics as part of the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. We'll be in front of an audience, and we're going to be joined by two of the most distinguished historians of the United States, Gary Gerstle and David Reynolds. And we will be talking in more depth about the question we keep coming back to, which is, is this really new? Have we been here before? We'll be asking them whether the Trump candidacy reminds them of anything or reminds them of nothing they've ever seen. Because we're recording that next week in the evening, it'll be a little bit later when Thursday's edition of Talking Politics appears on your phone or other device. So I hope you'll bear with us for a few hours while we edit that episode. But do please join us then. Uh, Do subscribe, do rate us on iTunes if you've enjoyed this podcast. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. The reason the code-breaking facility that cracked the German codes during the war was at Bletchley, just south of Milton Keynes, is that that's where the junction was in the line between Oxford and Cambridge. 
so you could get all the classicists and the mathematicians to, um, to crack those, the nuts. Yeah, the, the, those things that people are aspiring to, yeah. those kind of hubs yeah. where knowledge yeah. meets. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's the, the literally Ikea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>